0: The Chinese government is accused of aggressively targeting Western democracies with disinformation and hostage diplomacy. From Global News, I'm Jeff Semple. And on my new podcast, China Rising, we'll separate fact from fiction and hear from accused spies, whistleblowers, and others caught in the political crossfire as the pandemic rages across the world and incidents of anti-Asian racism rise. Listen to China Rising for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
1: A listener's note. The following
0: episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised.
2: Every day of our lives, we're faced with choices. Some are big, some are small, some are life-changing. Each one of those decisions comes from a fork in the road. I've seen the impact of some of those choices, not only in my own life, but in the cases I cover. There's always a critical moment where a person has a choice. To do good, to be good, or to do or be evil.
3: Yeah, because there is no uh, discipline. There's no discipline whatsoever. I pity them, okay, because, uh, if they don't get a life, you know, something to intervene for them, uh, you have to try to let go of these things. Because if you don't let go, uh, it's still gonna linger in you. And it's gonna, a lot of time, it, your decisions are based on how you feel, you mm-hmm. know, and that sometimes you're not right. But if you can just let go and just heal, start healing, then you have a chance, you know, you know to, uh, to better your life.
2: I'm Nancy Hickst, a crime reporter for Global News. Today on Crime Beat, I want to tell you about a person who faced difficulty in his life and struggled to find a way out. In the end, he was preyed upon by people who clearly chose the wrong direction. This is the story of the paths we choose and the paths that choose us. The final day of spring in Calgary in 2014 had a typical grab bag of weather, a little sun, a few clouds, and evening thunderstorms. Just before midnight, in the northeast community of Marlborough, the co-manager of Walmart, Mark Cottrell, was just closing up shop and getting ready to head home. As he walked out to the parking lot with a few of his co-workers, they spotted a man on a nearby bench who looked to be in distress.
0: So I walked over to the, it's actually a, it's a place where all the associates go to have a cigarette when it's raining and stuff. And he was doubled over in there, and he wasn't breathing when I checked him. He bled quite a bit by that point in time. It was a a large
3: pool beneath him, and that's why he wasn't really breathing all that much.
2: Cottrell called 911 and immediately went into police mode. It's first nature to him because before he was a manager at Walmart, Cottrell was a veteran officer with the Calgary Police Service. He retired after 20 years of service and welcomed the change of pace at the Walmart. But as he stood in that parking lot, the muscle memory of all those years on the service kicked in like it was second nature, and he secured the scene.
0: And the only thing that I could do at that point in time was just make sure that we didn't contaminate the scene and,
3: and wait for the police to get there and the ambulance.
2: Catrell tried to speak with the man, but he didn't respond.
3: I I couldn't even feel a a pulse on him now. He wasn't talking. He wasn't doing anything.
2: Police and EMS arrived within minutes and began trying to save the man's life. First responders noted the victim was bleeding from his head and face, and he had been stabbed at least two times, in the back of his leg and in his lower back. He was rushed to hospital in serious, life-threatening condition. In the meantime, investigators began trying to piece together what happened. There was a trail of blood. Officers followed that trail for nearly a kilometer. They found a shed and a garbage bin outside of an apartment complex. That's where police found another large amount of blood. Investigators believed this was the original crime scene, the spot where the attack on the victim happened. He staggered all the way from the apartment building to where he was eventually found, bleeding, gravely injured, and all alone. Who did this to him, and why?
4: So I got called in, like most detectives, in the middle of the night, uh, and was told that there was a serious stabbing and that they needed me to come. So when I got to the office, uh, the primary detective at the time, that an individual had been stabbed. We didn't know who it was. We didn't know the extent of their injuries, but they needed me to go to the hospital to check on the victim.
2: That's Sergeant Darren Smith. At just 38 years old, he's been an officer for 16 years and is currently in charge of the Offender Management Unit with the Calgary Police Service. From a very early age, he was drawn to work with law enforcement.
4: Uh, When I was a little kid, Uh, I had enough G.I. Joes and Hot Wheels to arm a small police service.
2: Sergeant Smith quickly climbed the ranks within the Calgary Police Service. He was promoted to detective just seven years into his career. I first met him back in 2010 while on a ride-along with a covert police unit. Police, get on the
4: ground now! CIBC, takedown, takedown, takedown.
2: In June of 2014, he was assigned to investigate major crimes.
4: So around 1.30 a.m., I got to the Foothills Hospital Emergency Room, which is our uh, trauma center for Calgary. Uh, when I went in, I asked the nurse if they had a victim there that had been stabbed. Uh, she said that she, they did. The victim at the time was just in the CT scan at the, right then, and, but he wasn't coherent, they said. Uh, he wasn't able to talk or give a statement to them. And it was then that I learned that the victim's first name was Gabriel.
2: To try and talk with someone who's barely clinging to life is not an easy task for anyone, not even police officers. It's
4: always a difficult task, but that's unfortunately what what we do for a living. When you look at policing, very few people ever call us to say, I'm, I'm having a good day. They don't call us to say this is something that's gone well in their life. Uh, we go to people when they're in despair, when they're in their... Their worst moment when their life has fallen apart, uh, when they've been assaulted or well when their loved ones being assaulted. So I've unfortunately had to be there when people died, and I've had to watch people die, and then I've had to I've saved some people from dying. I've also had to tell some many people's loved ones that their loved one did die. So every time it's difficult, but we do it so no one else has to. Do.
2: Sergeant Smith went and waited in the victim's room.
4: A little bit after I got there, they did wheel him back. He was unconscious at the time, but that's when I finally found out the extent of his injuries. Uh, He had stab wounds to his leg, stab wound to his back, uh, stab wounds to his head. Uh, He had cuts above both his eyes, and both his eyes were almost swollen, completely shut at this point. I spoke to the doctor that time, and saw that his entire face was swollen as well. And he said that, yes, he had been stabbed in the back. Uh, There was a lot of trauma to his head. And also that his hands, you could see, were visibly swollen, which I equated to most likely him attempting to defend himself.
2: The man, only known as Gabriel at this point, was in very bad shape. Sergeant Smith waited by his side hoping he would regain consciousness and be able to tell the story of what happened that night. So
4: after that, he he actually did wake up. So I sat there at his bedside as he woke up and then began to try and piece together what had happened. Uh, I remember him being incredibly weak and his, so, his voice was so soft and he had oxygen mask over his face that it was impossible to actually hear him by just sitting next to his bedside. So I leaned over, I am putting my uh, ear about an inch from his mouth so I could hear what he was telling me so that we didn't have to take off the oxygen or anything like that, so. And then I listened to his story.
2: But getting that story straight wasn't easy. Sergeant Smith said it was clear Gabriel had been drinking. And he
4: was still quite intoxicated uh, when I spoke to him. So he was having difficulty. You've ever spoken to someone trying to recall their memories when they've had a little bit too much to drink? Uh, that's what we we're at, combined with all the trauma that he had suffered and the fact that he had been in and out of consciousness, also trying to get medical treatment.
2: Sergeant Smith kept his ear close to Gabriel and repeated the soft spoken words so his partner could take detailed notes.
4: And it took some time, it was not a clear coherent story throughout the entire time like this took probably about an hour uh, speaking to him with medical staff coming in and, and out to try and get a full story of what had occurred but i will say this about gabriel he he was an incredibly nice person i i've had to interview a lot of people at foothills hospital before especially people that were intoxicated and they're not always the most cooperative they're not always the most respectful of either myself or nursing staff. And Gabriel was respectful the entire time. He was pleasant to nursing staff. He's the only person in 16 years that I've ever leaned over and put my ear an inch away from his face just so I could hear. So I wouldn't do that with just anyone, especially someone sitting in a hospital bed. So a lot of it was just how he spoke and how he tried to give us everything we needed
2: Sergeant Smith kept Gabriel talking. He needed to find out more about the attack.
4: We knew that he was going to eventually be taken to surgery. And we had to get as much of the information out of him as we could about what had happened. Yeah, and you don't know how long you're going to have with him. Obviously, in a, in a regular interview, I would take a lot of time to build that rapport and make people feel comfortable. And you have to remember, they are talking to a complete stranger. I'm asking them to tell me something that happened to them, even though they don't know who I am. I'm asking them to tell me things that they would probably talk to a counselor about after maybe a month of getting to know someone, and I'm asking them to tell me within a minute of meeting
2: me. Finally, Gabriel opened up and recounted what had happened. He said it all started when a couple of strangers started talking to him on an LRT platform.
4: So he uh, gets on the train downtown after picking up some liquor at our liquor store and then comes out into the Northeast and Southeast Calgary where he gets off at a train station. As he is walking out of the train station, he runs into these males uh, and they offer him a cigarette. He obliges and takes the cigarette and they say, ask if he wants to go for a walk with them to have some beer. So after a while, he walks a ways away from the train station. He was not sure exactly how far he walked, but at some point he gets hit in the back of the head with what he thought was a club. And It's then that the males started assaulting him. They hit him multiple times, they stabbed him multiple times, and then they took off with his backpack, which only contained a used DVD player inside.
2: That conversation included a fairly detailed description of the suspects. And police now had a possible motive of
0: robbery.
4: The description of, that he gave us of the offenders and the people that did that um, was crucial. Also, what was crucial was telling us what had been stolen from him.
2: Gabriel said he had never met them before.
4: And around 3 a.m. is when medical staff actually had come in to finally say that they had to take Gabriel off to surgery. Or as they they wheeled him out, I I said goodbye to Gabriel and said that we would chat with him again. But what I didn't know at the time, obviously, was the words that Gabriel spoke to me in that hour before would be the final words that he ever spoke.
2: Gabriel would never regain consciousness. This was now a homicide investigation. To properly tell this story, I need to take you back and tell you more about the man who lost his life. His full name was Gabriel O'Keenan. Gabriel was born in Maskwacis, formerly known as Hobima, about a two-hour drive north of Calgary. There are four First Nations communities in that area, including the Samson Cree Nation, where Gabriel was from. He was born in the fall of 1968 right in the middle of a dark time in Canadian history, the 60s scoop. That's when thousands of Indigenous, Métis, and Inuit children from across the country were ripped from their homes in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. They were taken away by child welfare workers and placed with mostly non-Indigenous families. And often, it was without the consent of the parents. Gabriel was one of the children scooped and sent away from his family.
3: Well, they take him and they put him in a home, and uh, there was no—they uh, didn't tell us where he was, uh, where they lived. You know, which part of the country, you know, which part of Alberta they were at, and uh, you know, just like uh, it was almost like a. Uh, a no-tell situation where, you know, they weren't allowed to know.
2: That's Derwin O'Keenan, Gabriel's uncle. He said his sister, Gabriel's mother, really struggled after he was taken away. Gabriel was the firstborn of four children.
3: It's just like tearing something apart from you, uh, part of something's always missing in the home. uh, That... uh, that's a part of you, huh? Alcohol entered in my sister's life. So uh, it was uh, difficult for her, huh?
2: Derwin is 64 years old, and he's a survivor of another dark time in Canadian history, the residential school system.
3: The people you call that are supposed to be the spiritual leaders uh, were... Our demons. Yeah. They were the abusers. They were supposed to be the people of the extension of God. Uh? But no, those were the our, our, our demons. They abused they abused us in so many ways physically and mentally.
2: It's estimated that 150,000 indigenous children were ripped from their families. They were forced to attend government-funded, church-run schools. The goal was to assimilate these children into what was deemed mainstream Canadian society. These kids weren't supposed to speak their native languages or practice cultural traditions.
4: They're
3: a big family. And we, you know, we were a very cultural family. There was no room for our culture, you know, how the we lived and how we deal with issues, stuff like that. We have a family and unity, that part I was demolished. Yeah, in so many ways that, you know, even though one... Or two will be at home and there are all that residential school. And there's so much, you know, that uh, the siblings, you know, all my siblings, you know, that they miss each other and that uh, they want to be together, but they can't be. They can't. So that part is uh, what's lost.
2: Many of the kids sent to residential schools suffered severe sexual, physical, and emotional abuse.
3: You know, that we had suffered quite a bit. As for myself, you know, I went through that that phase in my life, you know. But, you know, the thing is that uh, the abuse I went through, you know, that uh, it had damaged my eardrums. The eardrums were infected, and then they started. To, they broke my eardrums.
2: Derwin told me he forced himself to move forward from that horrible time in his life.
3: Learn how to deal with these things, you know. The, you know, dealing with my demons, you know, how to not let them uh, be part of my life again. You know, that uh, I let them. Let them that for a long time. I've learned to, to forgive even though they don't deserve it. I, I forgave and that I freed myself from it. and uh, So uh, this way I can go on in life and that uh, I, I'm a much better person.
2: But Gabriel had a harder time dealing with the trauma he suffered after being ripped from his family as a child. He was returned to his family on the Samson Cree Nation when he was a teenager. His brother William told me he remembers a lot of fun times riding horses, motorcycles and fishing. But Gabriel still struggled.
3: He started drinking.
2: He tried to push forward. He got married and had kids.
3: He uh, he took pride in his uh, children. Uh, he tried to establish a lifestyle like that. He, want, he wanted to be a family man. Huh? But the thing, the sad part was that uh, when you see alcohol in your life, you get accustomed to it. And then after a while, like, uh, I think he ended up in prison. And um, after he got out, that he was in uh, Calgary. And that's where he met uh, his uh, suffer wife.
2: Gabriel continued to struggle with his addiction to alcohol, and he ended up living on the streets on and off for about a decade. Gabriel became almost a ghost, someone who was likely invisible to most people who walked by him on the street. But his family never forgot about him, and he never forgot about them.
3: I was in uh, Elgray. And I went to look for them, and I found them. And, uh, see, I wanted to uh, give him a chance to come back and uh, recuperate. And, uh, instead of having to live a street life, well, you know, he brought his possessions with him, you know. Just like He came, but uh, you know, he only lasted, I think, about a couple of weeks, and then he went back. He didn't want to be part of it here. Like, he too many memories.
2: A few months later, on June 20th, 2014, Derwin decided to try and get Gabriel to come home again. This time, he took another of Gabriel's uncles with him. They searched and searched for hours.
3: Yeah, I always want to bring him home. Anyway, we couldn't find him, huh? I drove around in the city of uh, Calgary and uh, looking for him, you know, places where he would be or talk to his friends. I left around about 10 o'clock around there. That day, that's when it happened that evening. You know, that I got a cough that uh, he was in the hospital.
2: The what ifs have haunted Derwin.
3: I could have stayed another hour or two and maybe I would have found him, uh, you know, just like, where he was stabbed, I went looking around in that area.
2: He was able to see his nephew in the hospital, but he never got a chance to say a final goodbye. Gabriel's injuries were just too severe.
0: You can find answers to just about anything online, but what about those mysteries that can't seem to be solved? Spooky secrets which have stumped even the cleverest of clickers. Well, set the mouse aside because the myths have met their match in the Spotify original. Internet Urban Legends Every Tuesday, evidence expert Loewy Lane and skeptic Eleanor Barnes investigate the internet's creepiest conundrums, covering conspiracy theories and combing through clues to separate hoax from haunt. Together, they tackle the terrors of Twitter. TikTok horror stories, paranormal YouTube videos, and every unsettling internet tale in between. Each episode is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. Can the gruesome twosome solve these mysteries? Or will they remain internet urban legends? Wade through the weirdest stories on the web and follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free only on Spotify.
2: In the meantime, officers were working around the clock to catch those responsible for Gabriel's death. After he died, the case was handed over to the Homicide Unit from the Major Crimes Unit that started working on the case the night he was stabbed. Once someone dies, a case is automatically redirected to the Homicide Unit, where detectives specialize in investigating suspicious deaths like this one. Detective Tom Sajin took over as the primary investigator.
1: So what ends up happening then, Nancy, is that we form very much like a, an initial homicide, and we conduct a briefing right at the onset of our involvement. But we bring in those investigators who had done all of the, the first 48 hours of work, because really, they're running that briefing and bringing everybody up to speed on what they know, what they've done, what they believe, etc. cetera.
2: Sajin is now retired from the Calgary Police Service. He left in early 2015 after 25 years. This was one of the final cases he investigated. He said that Gabriel was left for dead by his attackers. And as I mentioned earlier, police followed a trail of blood and found the original crime scene.
1: There's a lot of police involved, there's crime scenes, there's lots of scenes, there's lots of things being contained. And what that means at two in the morning is that everybody sees lots of blue and red flashing lights.
2: And that's when investigators got a bit of a gift.
1: I called that a big gift. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Out of the blue, police got a tip.
1: Out of the dark, and we've never identified this individual, a citizen comes to the scene of the attack and speaks with officers at that scene and states there's a sketchy-looking guy that's on the transit bus that appears to have some blood on his hands.
2: Basically, a good Samaritan showed up out of nowhere and pointed to a suspicious person on a nearby bus. And as quickly as he came he disappeared. But the timing of that tip was impeccable. A minute or two later, and that bus would have been gone. Police immediately jumped into action.
1: The beauty of technology and radios, communication is sent to all the other units. A call is made by communications, I believe, to transit. The buses are stopped at whatever stop they're at in that immediate area, and, and the officers attend and, and locate him on the bus. So we take this individual into custody. He's a young person. And he is found to have blood on his clothing.
2: And there was more. Remember that conversation the victim had with Sergeant Smith in the hospital when Gabriel described having his backpack stolen? This young person not only had blood on his clothes, but he also had Gabriel's belongings.
1: He's in possession of property that's later determined to belong to the victim, which included his backpack, baseball cap, and a DVD player. He's taken to a district office. He's placed in a room, given that there's blood on his clothing. Everything that he's in possession of becomes seized. And we give him, let's call it a prisoner suit to wear in in lieu. So we seize all of his clothing. We turn all of that over to crime scenes because at the end of the day, that evidence is going to be analyzed by the forensic crime lab for DNA comparison back to the known blood samples of the victim.
2: This all might seem like a bit of a slam dunk, but this case was far from over. In fact, things got more complicated for police because it turned out this suspect was only 16 years old.
1: It's very difficult to obtain a statement that's admissible for court purposes from a young person. There's many requirements around that. There's many requirements and rights afforded the young person.
2: In Canada, we have the Youth Criminal Justice Act. By law, we're not able to identify anyone under 18 who's alleged to have committed a crime or been convicted of a crime. So I'm not able to tell you who this young person is. In this case, police had to call the teen's parents along with defense counsel. Sajan said they didn't push for an interview with this young person because there was another issue they had to consider.
1: During the reading of what we call the Youth Caution and Waiver, uh, Detective McCann formed the opinion that the young person was unable to comprehend the elements of the waiver. What we also have here, Nancy, is maybe some concern as to the cognitive ability or understanding of the young person. So, if you have that concern, any statement that you may obtain would be inadmissible. And accordingly, Detective McCann just abandoned any attempt at obtaining a statement from him.
2: The 16-year-old was charged with robbery. At that point, Gabriel was still fighting for his life in hospital he would later face an additional charge of second-degree murder. The next step for police was poring over CCTV from the area where the attack happened, the Walmart where he was found, and the LRT station.
1: It's extremely important to get on that right away. There's there's a couple things with video evidence. You don't know how long it's going to last. You don't know if it's going to be just disposed of the next day. You don't know what you don't know. Um, you don't know what you're going to see or not see in that video. So, like any criminal investigation, the securing and preservation of evidence is always one of your more important tasks. You can follow up on what that leads to, or what that provides at a later time, but you really need to make sure that you put a lot of time and effort into just identifying, preserving, and securing evidence. And video is one of those things.
2: What police found while reviewing that video was key evidence in this case, specifically the video from the LRT station.
1: But what the LRT video shows us is that the young person who had been taken into custody... A person matching his description, wearing the same unique type of clothing, which is easily identifiable in the LRT video, is seen with one other person and our victim on the LRT platform at Marlboro LRT at approximately 11.30 p.m. uh, on June the 20th, so just a half an hour prior to uh, the offense actually taking place. So there's the three of them on the platform of the Marlboro LRT at 11.10 p.m. That LRT is followed to the length it's able to be followed. And they can be seen to get off the platform in an easterly direction towards the Marlborough Mall.
2: That also matched the story Gabriel told Sergeant Smith, that he met two strangers on the train platform He said he left with them thinking they would go for drinks. They're seen walking near an apartment complex, the same one police identified as the original crime scene. But that's when they all go off camera.
1: The other thing the video helps us with is what happens afterwards. As I mentioned earlier, Nancy, we track the movement of our victim following a blood trail from from where he was found to where he was attacked. When we follow up with the video out of the mall itself, we can actually see our victim walking that exact direction. He suddenly appears on the mall video walking to where he was found. And that's at 11.27 p.m. on June the 20th. So sometime between 11.11 p.m. and 11.27 p.m., that is the time of the, uh, what ultimately becomes the murder of our victim.
2: I should tell you, going through this video evidence takes some time. They followed the CCTV from the time the two young men met the victim, and they also followed it back to see if it could reveal further clues to help identify the second suspect.
1: Where were they prior? And we followed the LRT video all the way back, many, many hours, and put both the offenders at the Chinook Centre Mall on the same day at 9.54pm. So we know that they had taken the LRT from Chinook Centre to downtown and then to Marlboro LRT. We never saw the victim with either of the young persons during any of the review of the video. So we truly believe that the victim just appeared at the Marlboro LRT and it was a chance meeting. It's not as though they followed or were traveling with him.
2: You're probably wondering about the references to some of these Calgary locations and the distances between them. The walk between Chinook Centre and Marlborough Mall is at least two hours. If you drive, it's about 15-20 minutes. On the LRT, it's about a 45-minute ride. Because they rode the train, their movements were tracked on CCTV, and Sajan said it wasn't hard to pick out the two suspects.
1: It's, it's pretty easy to track because I wear, wear some pretty boring, bland kind of clothing, fairly nondescript. These young persons are wearing loud clothing, lots of labels, designer baseball hats, um, big letters, big logos, that kind of stuff. So really easy to follow their movements.
2: Those logos would also become key evidence in this case. The unidentified suspect was wearing black pants, a black hoodie with a Brooklyn Nets logo, and a baseball hat with the word Raiders on the front. Police took photos from the CCTV and showed them to security personnel at Chinook Center, the mall they were seen at earlier that night. One security guard thought he recognized one of the young men and gave police their name.
1: So, okay, this is, this is good information. Um, so now we have a possible identity on a second offender.
2: So again, this might seem very straightforward, an easy end to this investigation. But what Sajin has learned over the years is investigations are rarely that easy. In this case, things were about to get complicated. Here's what we have so far. We have one teen, a 16-year-old, already in custody. Police are now trying to identify the second suspect. But this lead turned out to be false. The teen the security guard gave police was cleared. He wasn't involved. This really speaks to some of the challenges police encounter, especially when they're dealing with young people.
1: We locate suspect number one. He's interviewed. We bring mom along for that. We learned and appreciate that I am not conducting the interviews myself. As the primary, you're in a boardroom, you're directing things. You have a number of resources and others who help you through this. Suspect one is interviewed. It is believed through that interview and the interview with his mother that he's not involved. He's not responsible. So you have, again, you have counsel, you have family involved. You you go through a lot of steps. And I mean, a lawyer's first advice is always to say nothing, right? What helps us in this process is the interview with suspect number one's mother. She is able to, I guess, provide an alibi for the suspect and place him at other locations at the time of the incident in the company of other people. So what we do is, although we suspect he's probably not involved, we begin to interview those other people that Mom has provided. And they corroborate the story, so we're able to eliminate suspect number one.
2: It seemed police were back to square one in trying to identify the second person seen on CCTV talking with Gabriel that night.
1: This takes some time. To get through all this, so we're at, you know, we're working day and night with a number of, of investigators. This is all happening around June, on June the twenty
2: fourth. As detectives interviewed witnesses, they also cleared suspects, and each person they spoke to gave new names and pushed the investigation forward. Sajin said they quickly learned people were talking about the homicide.
1: They are aware of the murder. And they know who accused number one is. And people are talking.
2: One of those people police interviewed recognized the hat the unknown suspect was wearing and said they knew whose it was. Remember, surveillance video showed the second suspect wearing a black Brooklyn Nets hoodie and a Raiders baseball cap. With
1: the Raider's words, large white lettering, easy to see.
2: So police tracked the owner of the hat. But it turned out that teen had given his Raider's hat away a few months earlier.
1: It is complicated. And it, it, yes. And when you're trying to explain it all to a Crown prosecutor and to defense lawyers and to everyone else later... You almost need a flowchart to play it all out, to see where it all goes. Like a timeline is a good word to use, right? A timeline of events.
2: Fortunately, the original owner of the hat told officers who he gave it to. So off police went to interview that teenager, who became the latest suspect on their list.
1: He was initially interviewed as a witness and provided the following information. He heard from his friends the witness that we had spoken to earlier, and another unknown person, that police had spoken to them about the incident. He knows what happened on the Friday. And the person that we are speaking with now is observed by the investigators to have a small cut on his hand, on his left knuckle, which he described as being from a fight with his friend who tried to hit him. So other observations of our accused are that he had um, and he had stated, and it was observed that he had just cut his hair the previous day, and it was usually long all around and usually in a ponytail.
2: In his dying declaration, Gabriel told Sergeant Smith that one of his attackers had long, dark hair. The detectives were becoming increasingly suspicious. Could this be the second offender?
1: Dad approached Detective Cavilla and provided Detective Cavilla a cellular telephone state it belonged to his son. Dad invited Detective Cavilla into the residence and at the request of Detective Cavilla showed the accused bedroom. Once inside the bedroom, Detective of Cavilla observed a black Brooklyn Nets hoodie along with a Raiders baseball cap that were similar with the video images that he had seen earlier and also observed a red spot on the upper portion of the hoodie.
2: Detectives believed that red spot was blood. It was enough to secure the home and get a search warrant. Police seized a pair of black pants, a black Nets hoodie, and a black Raiders hat from the 13-year-old's bedroom. Investigators used a presumptive hemostix test. It's a simple swab test that reacts to dried blood samples. Those tests confirmed the presence of blood on the hoodie and blood was visible on the pants. The 13-year-old was arrested for the murder of Gabriel O'Keenan.
1: An interview was attempted with him along with his lawyer and mother. However, no statement or admissions were made.
2: Police, then went back and re-interviewed several of the witnesses to see if they had any further information. Tom Sajin refers to one key witness as witness number two. It turns out he had some conversations with the 13-year-old accused on Facebook Messenger.
1: Witness number two brought up the fact that someone had passed away and asked accused number two if it was a kid. Accused number two replied that the victim was a hobo and that he stabbed the guy three times, twice in the leg above the knee and once in the back. That information becomes really important to us because the nature of the, the explanation of the attack is consistent with the injuries noted on the victim.
2: The evidence was piling up.
1: And the final part of all of this, Nancy, is our analysts and are forever following the Facebook chatter that goes on. And on just prior to accused number two's arrest, he posts a new photo of himself on Facebook with his short hair on June the 25th, 2014, just prior to his arrest. He's wearing a Raiders with a Raiders baseball cap identical to that from the uh, Marlboro LRT video of June 20th, 2014, and the same as that, seized from his residence.
2: Police had the Facebook chat, the clothing, the hat, the CCTV, and they also had DNA evidence.
1: I can tell you that it takes weeks and months to have a proper forensic DNA analysis done of all of those items that were seized from both of the accused. And I can tell you that months later, the victim's blood through a DNA analysis is identified on both accused number one and accused number two's clothing that were fined at their respective times of arrest. So DNA evidence is solid.
2: This is a case that really shows how investigations work.
1: Good old fashioned police work, that's exactly what it is. You're following the trail of evidence. That's what you're doing, you're following the evidence. Where does it lead you? Where does it logically lead you? Right, And that's what we did through all of this. You get a little bit of information, you move forward with that. Where does that go? Where does that go? Where does that go? Where does that go? Right? And it all ties together at the end, right?
2: Both teens were charged with the second-degree murder of Gabriel O'Keenan, their motive believed to be a robbery that went way too far. The autopsy revealed he suffered two stab wounds— one to the back of his left thigh that was 10 and centimeters deep and another to his lower back that was 11 centimeters deep. He died of loss of blood because of those stab wounds. The medical examiner noted he also suffered multiple injuries to his head, torso, and limbs.
1: You know, no statements ever obtained from the young persons. The only information we had from the victim was that they were trying to rob him. I truly believe it was for nothing more than his backpack and contents and his beer. It was for nothing more than that. It was senseless. It truly was senseless.
2: The trial was scheduled for October of 2015, about a year and a half after Gabriel was killed. But in the end, only one of the teens would stand trial the 13-year-old pleaded guilty to a lesser charge.
0: You're watching Global Calgary.
2: It's been just over a year since a 45-year-old father of four was left for dead outside of a northeast Calgary mall. Gabriel O'Keenan was stabbed twice. He later died in hospital. His brother, William, never got a chance to say goodbye.
3: It still hurts right here. It's always going to hurt. He was a good guy, like, he liked having fun. wasn't really a troublemaker or anything. I uh, He left. He left behind four beautiful kids two sons and my three sons and a daughter.
2: Wednesday the trial began for one teen accused of second degree murder in the case. One day earlier a younger teen pled guilty to the lesser charge of manslaughter for his role in O'Keenan's death. He was 13 at the time and after the random attack he sent a Facebook message to his cousin saying he had stabbed a hobo.
4: This makes me mad
3: like he wasn't a hobo.
2: The 13-year-old admitted he and another teen met O'Keenan at the Marlborough LRT station. The boys asked him to go for a drink. Minutes later, he was stabbed at a nearby apartment complex. He later walked to Marlborough Mall, where he was found by a store manager lying face down in a pool of blood. This
3: is just a senseless, stupid thing for these
4: kids to do.
2: The 16-year-old accused, the first one to be arrested, pleaded not guilty and the case went to trial. That's when I got to see the CCTV video of Gabriel's final moments as they played it in court. He's seen meeting the two teens at the LRT station and then walks away with them. They went off camera and then Gabriel was seen walking all alone outside the mall. He was later found unconscious outside of the nearby Walmart. The deadly assault was not caught on tape. Gabriel's brother, William, and his uncle, Derwin, also sat through the trial. It was devastating for them to see that video.
3: If it wasn't my brother, it would have been somebody else. These kids, they don't belong on the street. It was deliberate. So these people knew what they were doing. You know, my nephew was intoxicated.
2: The judge reached a decision in this case in November of 2015, but it wasn't what Gabriel's family was hoping for.
0: Emotions running high in a Calgary courtroom today as a teen who was charged with second-degree murder and the death of a Calgary man was found guilty of a lesser offense. The father of four was beaten and stabbed to death, and now his family say they have lost faith in the justice system. Here's Nancy Hext.
2: Monday, O'Keenan's family left court disheartened, feeling there will never be justice in his death.
3: He took somebody away from me, and there's nothing that can ever erase that feeling.
2: Both teens have yet to be sentenced. The maximum penalty under the Youth Criminal Justice Act for manslaughter is three years and can be served in custody or in the community. The 16-year-old was sentenced to three years. He served 16 months pre-trial and was ordered to serve the remaining time in the community. The 13-year-old was sentenced to 22 months in custody, but after credit for time served, had just 11 months of conditional supervision to serve in the community. Gabriel O'Keenan's family wanted harsher sentences, but it's not only that. They wonder why these kids were out roaming the LRT lines and streets so late at night in the first place. Sergeant Darren Smith told me he met with the mother of the 16-year-old moments after his arrest.
4: According to his mother, he functions at a lower level, which was clear from just speaking with him. However, I know... The mother really did state that she had a a distrust for the police um, and how we're basically a a large (laughs) gain against them. So I went back and forth on and off with the mother uh, for the next several hours, um, keeping her updated on what was occurring, making sure that her son was okay. Um, As to why he was out, that is always going to be a question. His mother was making excuses for him from the second I started talking to her, which is not unlike a lot of mothers. Obviously, they want to take care of their child and they want to defend their child, but that was one of the biggest things that I had to do.
2: Sergeant Smith told me it's something he's seen over and over, and he believes how parents react in these situations makes a big difference.
4: That's the biggest thing I... I see where parents either enable and defend some of the things that their child is doing and there's nothing wrong with continuing, you're still going to love them no matter what they're doing, but you can't condone it. Uh, I've had, unfortunately, a lot of parents who, they brought their adult, not child, their adult children into the home uh, who are addicts and they'll steal from them. And then when they steal from them, they won't believe it. Even if they see it on video, if they put up a video camera, and they saw the theft, they still won't believe it. It was someone else that convinced their, their child to do that. You need to hold your children accountable.
2: Gabriel's uncle, Derwin, also had a chance to speak with the parents of these teens at court.
3: The parents, because they have no control over their kids. Us parents, we don't look after our kids, huh? They're going to run
2: wild. Derwin told me the parents never apologized to him for what their kids did. And he felt they didn't accept responsibility for their kids' actions.
3: Yeah, because there is no uh, discipline. There's no discipline whatsoever.
2: It's been six years since Gabriel was killed. And the two people who killed him are now adults and long since out of custody. It didn't surprise the officers involved in this case, or Derwin, to learn they've both been in trouble with the law since. As of today, and the release of this episode, the older of the two offenders has a long list of outstanding charges, including possession of a weapon, assault with a weapon, escaping lawful custody, robbery, and mischief. Despite committing new crimes as an adult, we still can't reveal this man's identity. He's still protected under the Youth Criminal Justice Act. The irony is that the law is set up to hold young people accountable while promoting rehabilitation and reintegration, and with the hopes of addressing circumstances underlying offending behavior. Yet, this offender continues to engage in criminal activity.
3: I pity them, okay? Because uh, if they don't get a life, you know, something to intervene for them, uh, they're gonna end up like the, what happened to Gabriel. It's always like that. It doesn't matter who you are. It's gonna happen the same way. You know, it's just uh, different look, different shades, you know? It's all the same.
2: Derwin acknowledges that some paths choose us, as with Gabriel being scooped and sent into foster care. He said the hardships Gabriel faced consumed him.
3: He got caught in the system. When Gabriel uh, came out from prison, for him, it, uh, it changed him, uh, he got caught in that system, too. For me you know, to be in a residential school was like uh, a tool that uh, that helped me not to be part of that kind of lifestyle, you know, to have, have alcohol in my life.
2: Derwin believes it's important to never give up on someone you see struggling. You could be that person, who makes the difference in their life.
3: Well, you know, I could put a lot of effort in it. You know, it doesn't matter who you are. I choose to help you, but uh, I try my best to be there.
2: Derwin also believes we all choose how we react. It's up to us to decide what road we take going forward.
3: You have to try to let go of these things, because if you don't let go, uh, it's still going to linger in you, and it's going to, a lot of time, your decisions are based on how you feel, you know, and that sometimes they are not right. But if you can just let go and just heal, start healing, then you have a chance, you know, you know to, uh, to better your life.
2: Thank you to Derwin for sharing Gabriel's story with me and for trusting me with his. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode. I also want to thank our production assistant, Ryan Robinson, and thanks to Chris Bassett, the National Director of Content and Editorial Standards for Global News. I would love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing Crime Beat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you have a question about one of the episodes, send them my way. You can reach me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat. And I'd love to have you join me for added content on Instagram at nancy.hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks again for choosing us. Please join me next time on Crime Beat.